Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. I think you missed your calling. I think that you could have been like a really good. You, you look know, like very at home with if that. If you had been here an hour ago, <laughs> you wouldn't have said that. <laughs> Let me tell you. I heard. Yeah. All right. So we're here today with the fabulous, and talented, and very smart, and kind of like my hero, Tali Baoki. <laughs> right. Thanks for taking the time to be here. Thanks. So you've been recently uh, given the role of wine editor for Eater, Eater National, actually, and you've been writing for them for a couple of years, and mm-hmm. now they've kind of given you this really great position. Congratulations. Thank you. What, what's it been like writing uh, for online publications versus print? You did some work for The Chronicle mm-hmm. in San Francisco. You did uh, a little bit for Wine and Spirits, uh, some freelance articles. But most of those were in print. Mm-hmm. And here you have a medium where you can talk for 600 words, you can talk for 3,000 Mm-hmm. I mean, where's Which the filter? Which is the danger. Yeah. Right. Where's the filter? Where do you where do you feel like you need to cut out a paragraph or do you need to cut out a paragraph? And are people reading it? Because a lot of times I think people say, well, you're going to write for a blog or you're going to write for online. It needs to be short and quick because mm-hmm. the attention span is, is... But is that just... Is that true or no? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't... I, I think <laughs> I have a hard time reading through my own articles. So I'm sure other people kind of feel that way too. But... Um, I think that the great thing about online is is freedom, and that freedom has obviously a little bit of uh, the, the drawback is that you're self editing, and that can be difficult. And you know, two thousand words on the internet is is tough for anybody to get through if they're surfing the net all day. Um, but I think for me, uh, you know, I came to a point right before this happened with Eater that you know I knew I had to get a job a full-time job because freelance is difficult. Wine is a very sort of niche thing and there there's a very limited amount of publications that will buy wine content. Um, and I thought to myself, well, where do I want to go? Do I want to be in print? Do I want to be on the web? Um, and I did a lot of, I did a lot of thinking and I think, you know, for me and the way forward, especially being young and, um, you know, wanting to do something a little bit different and the web is the only place for that. 
Okay. Um, I think that for print, there are a lot of people who can do what I do better than me. Um, oh, is that true? You, you, absolutely. You feel that way. Absolutely. And I think, I think you write with a lot of like energy. Like the way that you write really brings people into the story. You make great references, mm-hmm. but you but you feel like there are some maestros of print that are a little. What's that? What is it? A little intimidating, about, or is it just the fact that they're competing for the same assignments and they're better better known? Yeah, I think um, I think that also like my age has something to do with How it. How old are you? Twenty seven. Oh, okay. So, so I mean, fairly young, but you know, a yeah. few, few legal years of drinking. For wine, it's like I'm an infant um, because you know most of the writers are you know in their their forties, fifties, etc. Do you feel like there's a few other younger writers around that you um, are? You know, do you feel like there's a movement that there's several people kind of doing the things that you kind of do, or do you feel like you're out? Of, you know, how's that? What's the in picture? in blog form, I think so. I think that it's there's not a lot of people who are. It's really difficult to succeed and get paid for it in wine. Sure, it's um, not to th- write it. It's not to get paid for the words. Exactly, and I think that it's it really is a rat race. It's a very closed industry. I think that my getting into it was a lot of luck, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, I but guess you've you done could, quite well in a fair, fairly short amount of time, at least in the time that you've been writing, I think. Yeah, I mean, I just think that it's difficult for for young people. And people always ask me, what advice would you have for young writers, you know, you know, that want to break in and write about wine? And and that's something I thought about a lot. And I really don't have an answer to that because it's really closed. And I think how I got in was a matter of of just sheer chance. And also the fact that, that I am 27 has been a big part of why people even care about what I'm saying. So, oh, okay. Because they goes, feel like you have a fresh perspective, like the editors? Yeah, I think it's just a novel thing that someone that's that's young, because I think the sort uh-huh. of stereotype of the wine writer is this like old guy old with gout, guy. you know, who right. you know has been writing about uh, Bordeaux for his entire life. Uh-huh. Um, and I think the one thing I can say is that you know, with print, I think it's a little bit difficult at 27 to write about wine with real gravitas. And I think mm-hmm. the web, um, that free form, I think you you have, in terms of language, you have more freedom as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that you have more of an opportunity to connect with a younger audience. I mean, I feel like with print, like I'd always be sort of writing into somebody else's sort of already, you know, predetermined, you know, Style language book. and style and I think with the web like I feel like there is an opportunity to really just to to speak freely but you don't think that this is like something that a lot of people could get paid to do not a lot of people could follow in your footsteps at least not right now there doesn't seem to be a way to get paid for doing this kind of writing is well I barely get paid so it's hard right. for me to give it's hard for me to for me to give advice to, to young people, I will say that, you know, going off of what Amanda Hesser wrote, you know, yeah. about how food writing is dead. I mean, I think that it's it's an interesting thing to relate that to wine. And I think she's actually wrong about food. And I think, is you know, true? if you were to apply it to wine, she's wrong as well. I think that we're in a really interesting transitional period for both. Uh-huh. And I, I think to call, I think you can say that about journalism in general, um, that it's dead, quote unquote. But right. I think that that's do, also wrong. I think. We're just in a strange period where we're transitioning to web. I think eventually, you know, natural selection is going to weed out a lot of people. And I think you'll see more money being... Is this a natural wine thing that you're saying? (laughs) Yes, natural wine. (laughs) No, but, you know, I remember David Mamet. And he was like, my advice Mm -hmm. to young writers is not to do it. Because if you don't listen to me and you go ahead and do it anyways, then that's the stick-to-itiveness that you need in this business. Because you're going to get so much rejection that if I tell you it's a, a rosy career path and mm-hmm. I'm going to be lying to you, 
but if I encourage you and, and, and you get rejected all these times and you let it turn you off, then I failed too. And so mm-hmm. if I say to you, don't do it and you do it anyways, then that's you, you were made to do this, mm-hmm. you know, in a way you have to stand up for what you want it and, and mm-hmm. find it, even though it may not be given to you. Um, sometimes I think that that might be true for food and wine writing too, at least at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think at one point, you know, Eric Asimov like created the 25 and under column because yeah. there wasn't something like that. Mm-hmm. But now it feels like a lot of those slots have been sort of uh, taken up. Mm-hmm. And the is it, I mean, when I look to you, I see someone who's a real inspiration for creating their own niche who mm-hmm. kind of came relatively out of nowhere uh, and, and has something, you know, you have a body of work now mm-hmm. that you've done. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you did was really focus on restaurant wineless criticism. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, more than anything, has maybe propelled your ascent because mm-hmm. it felt like there wasn't someone doing that before mm-hmm. for current lists. Mm-hmm. I mean, people might say, yeah, the list back at, you know, back in the day at Les Bonas was amazing, but mm-hmm. that's as far as it would go. Yeah. Or people would say, oh, this little place, you know, has wonderful wines. Mm-hmm. But that was the extent of criticism often. Maybe mm-hmm. you would get one line in the Times that would talk about, who the wine director was or that they had wine or that it was from Europe. Mm-hmm. But there was rarely an engagement that went on for multiple paragraphs with a list. And I felt like when you worked at Wine Shop, uh, not only did you do it, uh, but you were really good at it. And I remember being reviewed by you mm-hmm. and feeling like this was the first time someone actually understood what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Like I remember people would come in and you would sit down and it was clear that they wanted to do an interview with you, but they didn't know where you worked or, mm-hmm. or like what you sold. And they wanted you to recommend wines that weren't on your list to go with chocolate, even mm-hmm. though you didn't have a chocolate dessert on the menu, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And you would just be, they would have no context for what they were asking you. But with you, um, you didn't necessarily come in for an interview, which was kind of the bread and butter of mm-hmm. the, the sommelier circuit, mm-hmm. but you anonymous, anonymously reviewed lists mm-hmm. and they were very frank and funny and mm-hmm. engaging assessments that were also very apt, I thought. Um, so in a way you did create a niche, you served a market that wasn't there mm-hmm. and then you did that again for Eater. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like to do that and how hard is it? Because it, it must have been not super easy because somebody else would have done it before. I mean, mm-hmm. you were the first person to engage with I don't know, how many was it, 150 lists that you reviewed? Yeah, and I looked through probably more than 300 to choose those 150 that we launched with. I think the funny thing about it is at the time I was, you know, 24 and I had just left uh, Italian Wine Merchants. And uh, I was writing a blog about, you know, music, art, and wine that like 25 people read. And it was never really in, it was never a part of my plan to become a a wine writer. And, and it just so happened that, that, you know, there was this new project and a friend of mine, you know, asked me if I want to do it because I was the only writer that he knew. And this is August. August Cardona, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so I think the, the, the real thing was, I think the reason why, I mean, at least if I, if I had to guess why um, it was successful, the content was successful, is that I really didn't know what I was doing. And I think that when you approach something with, with that sort of like, that, that like freshness and that mm-hmm. sort of, that like infant sort of sure. curiosity. And, and wonder about it. Wonder. And also I think too, like I wasn't held back by, there was no 
there was no, like, you know, there was nothing to look to. I had to just do it and I had to take a chance. And I wasn't worried about what other people were going to think about it. And I think because I hadn't been in the industry, right. I was entering, I didn't know you didn't anybody. You know how bad it could go. Nothing. <laughs> so I just did what I thought was the right, I, I just, I, you know, the, the way I approached it was just, I sort of just took a chance. I didn't know what I was doing. And, um, and I, they, wine lists always have sort of made sense to me. And I think that I'm very curious about it. I think sommeliers in general are the top of the food chain in the wine industry. And uh, you taste more wine than, than anybody else in the industry. Uh, you can understand, uh, you know, a producer over the course of 10 vintages and really understand that. And writers don't have that you know, they don't have the luxury of being able to taste every single year, every vintage of X wine. You know, mm-hmm. we have to really, we're like grasping at stuff here and there. And I think that you're, you have a more linear picture of, of wine than writers get. Is this a skinny, tall guy joke? <laughs> <laughs> they call me a pillar of my community. I'll have you know. It's not just because I'm super skinny and six foot five. <laughs> I hear you. You know, uh, yeah. So I, I think that, I think that uh, creativity obviously is is bred from uh, a lot of the time by by coming at something with real freshness and not being held back by um, what you think it should be. Um, so I think that that sort of guided me in the beginning, and I've tried to keep that, even though now it's a little bit difficult because I've got all these trolls on Eater and and you know <laughs> that 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 want to put it in a box and and it's easy to feel insecure about what you're saying. But I think I try to keep that same freshness with what I'm doing now. You mentioned a little bit about some of the, I would say, mostly anonymous criticism that you sometimes received. And sometimes I feel like people get criticized when they're cutting a little closer to the bone. You know, I feel like people who are saying something real are usually the first to get thrown under the bridge by people who aren't so happy about hearing that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And I see one criticism come up a lot, which is she never worked in the restaurant industry. She Mm -hmm. never ran her own list. That seems Mm -hmm. to be a recurring criticism. Mm -hmm. Now, when I read that, I think to myself, well, I'm sorry, which restaurant reviewer worked in the restaurant industry? Like when I read the Times or Mm -hmm. I read uh, really any publication, when I read Time Magazine for that matter, Mm -hmm. uh, and someone is reviewing a restaurant, um, very rarely have I ever thought that that person ever worked in a restaurant or uh, ran a restaurant or has any restaurant experience. Mm -hmm. Yet it seems to be uh, criticism not leveled at any of them, but one that's frequently leveled at you. Um, how does it make you feel? And what would you say to those people who are saying that? Because it feels like it's come up more than once. It, it makes me feel really bad about myself. Um, but, uh, you, you know, it's something that I think of all of the criticisms anyone can launch in my direction, I think that's the one that probably makes me feel the most insecure. Um, because I think that there is some real uh, truth to that criticism. And I, I really wish that I'd run a wine list. I can't say that I have. Um, while at Italian Wine Merchants, I was trained to do wine service. Like that, that's, but that's the extent of my experience with that. Um, but in a way, we don't ask customers or guests to work in a restaurant before they come in and act as customers. Mm-hmm. And what you're often doing is reviewing wine lists, not from the the mm-hmm. sommelier perspective, you're not mm-hmm. saying, hey, if you wanted to duplicate this wine list in Midtown, you could do it this way. Mm-hmm. But you're reviewing it for the co- consumer perspective. Mm-hmm. You're saying, hey, if you go to this restaurant, these are things that you might want to purchase and these are things you might want to avoid because of the pricing or mm-hmm. for some other reason. Mm-hmm. Um, is it necessary then that you work in a restaurant to answer that question? No, I don't think so. I think that um, the one thing is, though, I, I mean, I think that 
and the thing with Eater, I think that they've really liked the column because they don't, they know that it's touching on a nerve and uh-huh. so and reaction I, is is, a, is page views. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that you see those, I mean, me getting bashed in the comment sections is is actually not a bad thing for them. Uh-huh. They're um, like, hey, pinata girl, why don't you come back for <laughs> yeah, another right. try? Exactly. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that it's touching on a nerve because nobody else has done it before. And I think that there's going to be a ton of, I have to, I don't read the comments anymore. It took me a long time to get to that point. Let me ask you just bluntly, uh-huh. have you ever anonymously posted a criticism of your own work to generate page views? No, I have okay. not. I just want to get that out of the way because I think you're saying that. Well, you know, as that I was saying it, I was like, question. why haven't I yeah, like, used like, <laughs> multiple IP yeah. addresses and posted on my own work? When is it going to be acknowledged that she has five illegitimate <laughs> children yeah, yeah. in eight countries and like, she get has a syphilis. 50, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> 50 page thread going, you know, just your fan in the flames. Like just saying that I have all different I mean? kinds of neural diseases. I don't even think she really needs those eyeglasses. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, she's yeah. just using those for the look, the hipster thing. Stupid hipster. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're onto something. I think yeah. that's going to be in my new role as wine editor of Eater. It's basically just going to be me commenting on my own posts. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even think that's... Let me see her birth certificate. I don't think that's her real name. I don't even think she was born in America. How can she criticize wineless here? How'd you get into wine? I mean, how'd I get into why wine? wine? Like, how did that come along? I think I'm one of the... The interesting thing is I think I'm one of the rare people who, you know, came to wine first. Like, so many people go through... So many people go through, um, you know... They have like a roundabout way of ending up here. Yeah, I graduated from college and I went straight into wine. So I think that that's very rare. And um, and I think that it speaks to the popularity, the growing popularity of wine that somebody who's, you know, 21 and just graduating from high school, you know, knows enough or it's, you know, either rounded enough that they see that there's an actual career path that right. you could have in wine. Um, but how did I get into it? So uh, I grew up around wine because, you know, my, my father's side of the family is Italian. My mother's side is Spanish. So by virtue of heritage, wine was a part of my life, but not an intellectual endeavor at all and not something that I really thought about past, like, you know, just having it with dinner. Um, in high school, I just to as a lead into the story is in high school, I, I fell in love with art history. And it was the first thing that I think I had a memory for. And, and that will, that becomes just, you know, something that, that I have a terrible memory. I can't remember movies. I can like, you know, I can, uh, I don't remember what I did. You know, college is complete, like blank. I have no idea what happened. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a product of a variety of different things. But, um, art history was the first thing where I really had this sort of photographic memory for it. Um, and I always, I went to college and I thought, well, I'm going to study something that's a little more practical because what am I going to do if I study art history? And I chose journalism and political science, which, you know, journalism, it did seem like a, an okay idea at the time. And, and it was still, people were still making money. And then, uh, uh, you know, I started working in a restaurant when I was in college as a maitre d'. It was a place called the Mermaid in the East Village. Sure. Not known for its wine list at all, but... It's not bad, though. Yeah. A lot of Chris White's, as I recall. Yeah, lots of Rosenthal stuff, lots of Dresdner uh-huh. stuff, all yeah. of that. And um, and I started, you know, doing tasting with the staff and training on wine with the staff. And so are we breaking news here that you did work in a restaurant? Is that I did, yeah, for saying? two years. So, I, I mean, I feel like... <laughs> as a hostess. <laughs> we've discovered, like, the key to the Rosetta Stone or something. <laughs> yeah. Like, I feel like it's come out. Like it's, it's it, yeah it's it's out in the open now. I'll, I'll this is like Gary Hart admitting to having an affair. This is a scoop. You have and, a scoop. Right yeah, now. no, this is <laughs> got the scoop. Newt Gingrich's 
<laughs> second to the okay so i'm sorry to interrupt um you know so i started tasting wine and and um i think that i was attracted to it obviously because i i love wine it tastes good um but i started to realize that i had a sense memory for it and i think that um and i throughout you know now 27 i've realized that my my brain works when something's beautiful and i have something to aesthetic to to hold on to that something that that requires sense memory and so it was originally that, and so I sort of really like started, you know, tasting wines and comparing that, comparing them, and sort of creating this this bigger picture of of you know trying to understand different regions. Um, but I think for me, the real draw with wine, I can't say, oh, you know, there's this one wine that I had that I just, you know, I knew I knew it had to be in wine. Um, I think that it has a lot of the same qualities as at art as art history, and the things that I've loved about studying art is that they are it, art is obviously a conduit to explaining you know, humanity of a, a place and time. Um, there's so many soci- sociological and cultural things um, that can be explained through wine. Um, and it's just a beautiful way of understanding that. And also, I think I realized I had gone to Italy right after I graduated from high school in 2006, and or high school, college. Um, I'm actually like um, like 20 years old. <laughs> <laughs> I had to take the GED four yeah, yeah, times. Yeah. So. Um, so I so I went to Piedmont in 2006 and I worked the harvest there and and um, I discovered a lot of wines that I had never heard of and Ruque and Pella Verga and I just told this story for a, a publication just recently and um, and I, I there was a moment when I was you know at lunch in Piemonte and I had brought this bottle of um, of Brachetto from uh, Correggia. Mm-hmm. Oh, the Anthos, the, Anthos, the still one, yeah. And uh, we had we had had it chilled and with some cured sausage and and I was sitting at the table and there was a bunch of um, Macedonian vineyard workers that I was working with and you know my hands were all torn up because I'd never like used like I like hadn't used anything but like scissors that would cut construction paper I'd like never even done any, done any manual labor and so I was terrible at it anyway so we had sat down for lunch and and the Correggia came out and they had chilled it and and with the sausage and um, sitting there with these these guys who I could like hang on every third word if I was lucky. I didn't, we couldn't really speak to each other, but it was this beautiful moment where I think I understood that, that wine, you know, in its best moments is an instigator of, of happiness and, and togetherness and can make people feel like together, even though they couldn't be further apart. So I think that, that it was more, it was more that, that sort of launched me in, into wine. Um, and it sort of, wine sort of made my life better. Um, and I felt more aware. I looked at things different. I, I paid more attention. And, and I think I realized that without wine, like things were just more dull, you know? And I think that it made me a better person in the way that, that I see art differently and I see the world differently because I think it just requires so much attention constantly that I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think in that way it, it sort of changed my life and that's why I wanted to stay in it because I just didn't want the dull life that existed outside of it. There's one aspect, though, that I'm a little curious about, and that is mm-hmm. um, the emphasis on value. Because mm-hmm. it's one thing to like beauty, but mm-hmm. then it's another to be concerned with getting a better deal for it. Yeah. Because it's easy to say, like, oh, well, you know, these Grand Cru mm-hmm. wines are amazing, and, you, and some people spend their whole career doing that. Yeah. You know, but it feels like every time I read you, you really uh, want to put, as you call it, the bang for the buck mm-hmm. uh, in people's hands. You seem to mm-hmm. always have that idea of value it seems like it's in your early writing it seems mm-hmm. like it kind of is what drives the the themes of some of the writing that you've done that isn't wineless reviews 
Um, so even times it didn't really need to come up, mm-hmm. it feels like you're talking about the underdog, the mm-hmm. undervalued uh, as a as a go-to. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that's because that's what the market is interested in hearing as a readership? Or do you think that that's because of you? And if so, why is it a concern? Um, that's a really good question. I think that, you know, I spent some time in, in fine wine. Um, <laughs> I spent time in fine wine with Italian wine merchants and I was working with collectors and with really expensive wines and that was great and everything. But I think to me, what's really the wines that, that are most meaningful to me are those, those really honest regional wines. And I think that's why I love Italy so much. And, um, and I want to be able, and I think that's what, where the real value is. And that's where I've gotten, I've, you know, had sort of been able to pull the most pleasure out of those wines. And so I think that for me, I've been really dedicated to, to trying to pass that along. I think I have more to say about those wines than I would about fine wine. I think that, that there's there's plenty of other people who can talk about fine wine. I, it doesn't, to me, have the same, I don't have the same sort of emotional connection. I think, um, I mean, obviously to great wine, like I'm still going to, I'm going to chase those wines and put, try to put myself in every position I possibly can to, to drink those wines. Um, but I think that I think that the way that people connect to wine is not going to be through those wines. It's going to be through the wines that cost, you know, $60 on a wine list. And that's why it's important. I think that's why it's, those are the relevant wines, I think, to the everyman and also to me. So they're the wines that I get most excited about, frankly. So you now have this uh, wine editor uh, position at mm-hmm. Eater, which to me, I mean, not to you, seems kind of open-ended. Like mm-hmm. you could go in a lot of different directions mm-hmm. with it. You could do a lot of different things you want to do. Commenting on my own posts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> Never expected you yeah. would go in this direction. <laughs> Cutting edge. <laughs> right, right. Commenting on other people's posts. Yeah. Brooks of Sheffield. You know. uh, so, but here's what I want to know. Um, you've reviewed lists. Um, and one of the things I wonder about reviewers sometimes is if they feel the responsibility that if it changes after they they leave the venue, after they've mm-hmm. given their review, if the venue changes, mm-hmm. do they feel the need to go back mm-hmm. and uh, reevaluate? Because the way that your career took off, um, I felt like you reviewed all the lists for Wine Shop and then you left mm-hmm. and you went and did something else, which was great mm-hmm. for you. But there were reviews there that were done once. And then now with Eater, you've done a, a you know, a couple of years of reviews and you reviewed some things, sometimes very positively, sometimes negatively. Mm-hmm. I wonder if now um, this might give you the platform to to revisit some of those things. I mean, are you open to seeing a progression and change? I feel like the answer would have to be yes, but I'm kind of curious whether it's a concern of yours. Yeah, I think... Mm-hmm. Uh, now with with two years, I think it's. I mean, wine lists can change, as you know, so quickly. I mean, the sommeliers move around a lot, and you know, within one year, a wine list can go from being great to being not so great. And I think that the real goal with Eater is the goal of the site in general is to tell the story of a restaurant from the beginning and and the, to explain the life of a restaurant. And I think that my role as someone who talks about wine lists is to also explain the life of a wine list. And that's not even to say that, like, say a sommelier leaves and it's taken over by somebody else. And, you know, obviously we want to, rep- I want to report on that. But I think also 
to talk about, say, you know, a list that's been under the, you know, that's been helmed by the same sommelier for two years to understand how that's changed. Because I think, you know, that that speaks to how preferences change and it speaks to trend. It speaks to a lot of different things. So I think that, that yeah, um, going forward, being able to revisit something like, for example, Calicchio and Sons, which I, I reviewed in the very beginning. And I think that's a great example of a list that's changed a lot in two years. Um, so I think it's, I think it's really interesting to be able to go back. Yeah. Uh, now that you've done it so many times, now that you've gone through, you know, maybe 500 lists, are there, you know, you talked earlier about kind of, it was kind of, you didn't know what you're doing and, you know, you approached it kind of openly and sort of, I don't know, I'll figure it out. And that sort of translated for readers cause they didn't know what they were doing either. Mm-hmm. And they wanted mm-hmm. that sort mm-hmm. of narrator cause they could relate to that. Mm-hmm. Now, are you sort of looking for certain things? Do you kind of have your pattern down? And if so, what are they? Mm, that's a good one, too. Uh, yeah, I think that in the beginning, there were a lot of things that I I, I reviewed or I paid attention to that maybe I wouldn't now. Um, I think I think, you know, I always am looking for wine lists attached to restaurants that are popular. So even if the wine list might not be particularly of note, people still want to know. Okay, So that's a good point. Yeah. So so many people are going through it. You're affecting so many people. And if it's negative or positive or just neither of those, mm-hmm. but it should be commented on just by virtue of the fact that there's a lot of foot traffic. Yeah. And then I'll go ahead and I'll review a list like, um, like, like from this last week, um, Amali. Up on yeah, that was a surprising review. I didn't see that one coming. Nobody was like, "Hey, they're going to definitely do a Molly." You know? Yeah, because it's this this place that's sort of under the radar. And and uh, if I stumble across a list that's that's really might not be relevant to like a huge number of people, but it has you know somebody's doing something that is in context interesting, especially if you you're talking about that area, which is sort of a dead zone for for really interesting for an interesting wine list and wine lists that are well priced. So, like, if I see something like that 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 uh, is sort of going against the current, like, I'll definitely report on it, even if it's a random restaurant. I remember you did the review of Elsewhere, which could also have mm-hmm. been said to have been a place that was a little bit going against the current mm-hmm. in a location where you might not have expected those kinds of wines somewhere mm-hmm. near mm-hmm. Times Square. Um, mm-hmm. What does it feel like when you really like a restaurant and it doesn't work out, like, in terms of its commercial success? Yeah, I think it, you you have to wonder. I think you have to wonder why. And and I think with elsewhere, there were, there were a number of things that that contributed to it not working out. I mean, it's a really tough place to be, um, all the way over there on on Tenth Avenue, which I think it's on Tenth, and uh, you know, basically like at the edge of of Times Square. And I think that had a lot to do with it. Um, they, I knew that at the time they were having great success with the wine program in the sense that people were really drinking these wines, even though they were a little bit quirky and, and a little bit daring for the area. Um, it's, it's when a restaurant closes, it's usually not because of the wine, right? <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> so it's all like, Oh wow, this was a really bad wine list. And the, the restaurant just wasn't going to make it. Sure. Um, <laughs> uh, usually there, the people get away with having a really, really bad wine list. So you don't learn a lot about, but How, that's oh. not the case there. That was a good list. Yeah. So when it's a good list and it doesn't save a place, mm-hmm. you know, the place fails. And do you think that, I mean, what does that say about what we think of as a good list mm-hmm. if a good list doesn't survive? Well, I think that I think one thing that I have to continue to remind myself is that people really don't travel to restaurants for wine. Mm-hmm. And um, that's something that 
you know, that I actually do and, and, and I'm sure you do. And, um, but that's limited to a very small amount of people that will go to a restaurant because of the wine. And it's, uh, you know, as much as we'd like to believe that, that, uh, because a restaurant has a great wine list that more people will come there. Right. Like, I don't really know if that's the case. Uh-huh. I think that, um, my hope with Decanted is that that generates some interest in a list that's really interesting and yeah, maybe like people maybe will go there. Maybe you could change that. I don't know about change it, but at least try and encourage people to visit someplace that they might not have thought of if they're in an area and they want a glass of wine. Like that's that's the hope with that. But I don't know uh, what it says when a list is really great and a restaurant doesn't doesn't succeed. I think that maybe a lot of the time, for example, I think um, there's plenty of there's plenty of examples of restaurants that that don't have great food that have great wine lists, and that's a, a real it's a real bummer. Um, and you know, it's usually the failing of the food that closes a restaurant, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, my mom used to say parking first, food second, <laughs> service third, and then somewhere down around 10 is wine. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I don't know if that's changing. I'd like to think that it is, but I think that my view of... of well, more people are taking the subway, so parking might be <laughs> yeah. six now. I'm not sure. Um, anyway. No, but okay. So here's another thing that's mm-hmm. happened. Over the last couple of years, some of the restaurants with the biggest wine collections mm. have closed. Mm. And what we've seen is people um, putting together smaller wine lists, maybe not holding much stock, maybe not having much back vintages. And um, there's been opportunities created for younger people who maybe don't have as much experience who want to be sommiers to run that sort of smaller scale list. They may they might double as like a waitress or uh, or as a manager at a restaurant and then do the list. In a way, it seems to harken back to an earlier time when GMs used to do the wine list before sommiers. Mm-hmm. Um, do you agree with that trend? And if so, what do you think about it? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously the, the trend is towards smaller wine lists that are more manageable, that people don't have to take on as much stock and, and it costs less. Um, the trouble is with that, unfortunately, is, is at least in, in my mind, it's harder to put together a really great list that's small. And I, and you hear that from sommeliers all the time. Um, and then unfortunately you have a lot of people who are inexperienced that are running small wine lists. So it, it, it makes for a lot that sort of look the same. Do you um, find that to be the case? A lot of small yeah. lists are sort of similar. Yeah, and I think that especially if you if th- those lists that are attached to sort of a lot of these kind of hipstery Brooklyn restaurants or mm-hmm. or the the Manhattan version of those hipstery you know Brooklyn restaurants that look like you know like a 19th century French bathroom and you know they sure. got the whole you know the tiles and the blah blah I blah didn't reclaimed know that the wood had bathrooms. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, you got to edit that out later. <laughs> the the lists that a lot of those lists look the same. I mean, it's it's a it's Dresner, Rosenthal, Bowler, but the same Spurning. wines from from yeah. It's it's the wines that I think someone said something really interesting to me the other day that there are, there are a lot of sommeliers who won't buy things unless other people have purchased them that they mm-hmm. admire that in they the industry. Admire. That was true for me. I remember being like, "Did Cat buy this wine?" And mm-hmm. like, actually, I, I had to realize that I was being played because mm-hmm. people come in and be like, hey, Kat just bought this. And I had such immense <laughs> respect for Kat. Uh, and they all knew that, that they they figured I would get it, too. And then I had to like, like, that was kind of the development of me being different. But I remember that there was another sommelier that I really admired and I wanted to have a good list, too. And, you know, as a young guy and I'm talking about uh, 14 years ago now. 
<clears throat> I remember exactly that happening, and mm-hmm. I had to realize that I was actually um, being taken advantage of a little bit by mm-hmm. not having my own. And Kat just bought this, you know, one hundred percent. Yeah, you know, salesman comes in, Alberino. Right, right. <laughs> well, as if we had Alberino around at that time, but no. But people would say, "Oh, you know, Kat," because you know, a smart salesman knows what what makes wheels tick mm-hmm. uh, with 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 the buyer, because you know that's how they make their money. But uh, so you feel like there is a level of similarity. Do you also feel like that's a similarity that you like? I mean, do you have a sympathy with those wines yourself? I find that like it's a, it's a similarity, but at the same time, those are wines that I enjoy. So mm-hmm. it's harder for me to say like I don't like it. Mm-hmm. But I guess you know, <clears throat> it used to be that say in the early '90s, a lot of wine lists. Um, look the same Mm -hmm. but the way they look the same is very different than how they look the same now and one of the things that's really changed is regionality where people feel like they if they have an italian wine italian restaurant they need to have italian wine Mm -hmm. and if they had french restaurant they need to have french wine whereas before it used to be a lot of california either Mm way um what do you what do you see happening when buyers don't stick around for, say, five years to develop their own viewpoint? Do you think the trend of similar will stay? Because if if you have, I think you know how difficult it is when, with sommeliers to move around a lot. Mm-hmm. But then also if you have less kind of permanent sommelier roles where people are more uh, doing double duty on the floor and then maybe also writing a small list. Do you think we're going to see more lists that are similar or uh, what's going to happen or am I wrong? No, I think that I think that we probably will see more lists that are similar. And, and going back to what you said, I mean, these are wines that I love. Um, I love the Rosenthal book. I love the Dresdner book. I mean, these are some of some of my favorite wines are parts of these books. And I think that, you know, what it's made for is even if the lists are similar, there are more places where I actually have things that I want to drink. I feel that way. You know, and and so it's less important to me that the lists are are stand out from each other, Mm -hmm. you know. I'm just glad that I can go to a place like Maison Premier in Williamsburg, and if I don't feel That's like a cocktail, a place. I, I, I have wines place. to drink. You know, that is something that even when I was starting, you know, decant, starting with Wine Chap, you know, f- I don't even know how many years ago that was now. I think almost four years, four years ago, more than four years ago. Uh, you didn't see as much of that. I mean, in four years, that's changed a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, so I can't say that it's necessarily a negative thing, but I think the lists that are that are small and different tend to stand out far more than, than uh, maybe they did before. I don't know. So what are the distinctive lists that are standing out for you right now and what is making them that way? What is distinctive about them? Um, I think like, you know, for th- there's so few really big sort of canonical wine lists uh-huh. that exist anymore that are being, you know, consistently maintained. Sure. And I think 11 Madison Park, I mean, from the beginning uh-huh. has been a list that I have a, an immense amount of respect for, for a variety of reasons. I think um, for a lot of these four-star restaurants, value has been something that is sort of not um, an imperative. And I think with 11 Madison Park, they turn that on its head. I think that you go to a place like La Bernadette or, or Jean-Georges and you, you know, you, you expect four times markup um, because that's just the way that it is. And there's a reason why. And I totally understand that. And I think, you know, wine service and, and the glassware and all of that, all of these things are important and they cost money. Um, but I think 11 Madison Park has managed to do something really fantastic and 
and have a, an incredible collection of classic wines and also quirky wines in every single price point. Um, and I think that, you know, if you're going to do a really big list, you might as well, you know, having really something for everything on, on a list that big is, is, is the advantage. So, um, I think that, uh, I think it's really impressive. Um, you know, as you know, and, and I, I really think that speaking to like a small list, I think North End Grill is really great. And I think they've done, and they've created a list that's really, really compatible with the food there. Um, and so you're, you're basically saying John Reagan has <laughs> done some of the most distinctive lists in New York and he's done it twice. Yeah. And I think, I think that I like those two lists, but I think outside of that, I think, um, what Michael did at, at Balloon Sued is really great because I think he put wines in front of a, a group of clientele that, that, uh, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think would, uh, you know, be interested in Greek wine, for example, but it's selling. And, um, and I think that it's bold in that sense. Um, but also Mike had the funniest story uh, <laughs> told me yesterday, he said, my first concert I went to with my brother, <clears throat> I was 13, he mm-hmm. says, and they wanted to go to, um, a public enemy concert. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, they needed someone to drive them because mm-hmm. they weren't old enough. And it was at a stadium that was a long ways away. And it was like Public Enemy and Digital Underground was like the opener. And so they went to their cousin, uh, his uncle Jerry, mm-hmm. and he was like, Uncle Jerry, we need you to give us a ride to the concert. And mm-hmm. as as like a thank you, we'll buy you a ticket and you can come hang with us <laughs> at the concert. Be like our chaperone. I think Michael told me this story once. And so Jerry goes, what's the concert? And they said, Aerosmith. <laughs> it's an Aerosmith concert. <laughs> yeah. And Aerosmith. so Uncle Jerry's like, sure, I like Aerosmith. And so they all pile into the car, and he's like, you kids are paying? No problem. And they drive down to the stadium, and let's just say it's not the Aerosmith crowd <laughs> in a parking lot. It's like all hip-hop to the extreme. And Uncle Jerry turns to Mike, and he's like, you know what? You lied to me. This is not an Aerosmith concert. This is something else. <laughs> and I feel like Mike you know, takes people to the Burgundy Stadium, but it's actually, hey, it's Santorini's playing tonight. Yeah, yeah, you know exactly. what I mean? It's like, yeah, all, and all the, the people in the parking lot are speaking Greek, and yeah. you told me this is a Grand Cru Burgundy tasting. <laughs> you know, I think at some level, uh, he's made uh, the old switcheroo very comfortable mm-hmm. uh, for both the staff and mm-hmm. for the guests. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a willingness where he's not putting up a lot of like mental barriers Mm -hmm. that are like, Oh, you can't try that. You can't try that. That would be too weird. Yeah. He's saying like, yeah, whatever. We're going to the concert, you know, like come along, whatever. Um, I also, there's a, there's a few lists and I've always loved the list at Franny's. I think that's one of the best lists in the city. Food there is killing it right now. It's amazing. Vinegar Hill house. I think that's a great example of a list that's, that feels like it's exactly where it should be, mm-hmm. um, and it's incredibly well priced, but it's just perfect for that that neighborhood. I mean, there's a lot of examples of of really great wine lists in the city. What's underserved, both neighborhoods and wines? What are the categories and what are the places where you just don't see what you might like to see? Williamsburg. Williamsburg is underserved for good wine restaurants. Yeah. And I think it's because it's such a cocktail and beer town, mm-hmm. and I think I think it's just because no one's found a way to package wine as as in in a way that's appealing to like a sort of hipster counterculture. It's a big ticket item to a certain clientele, yeah. especially if you're going to have aged vintages, mm-hmm. and you have to be able to support the inventory. Mm-hmm. So a restaurant owner needs to be able to sink in half a mil and have that return. Yeah, but uh, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to ask, what are wines that you think? need a champion that maybe don't have one 
Um, well, it's it's hard to from the inside because I feel like there's everybody there. There's no category that's like really unchampioned. Really, I, th- I think I think Austrian red wine is a big one, but I think that it's now gaining plenty of people who are willing to be evangelists for it. But what about like Australian Shiraz okay, or well, like right. American Cabernet, Bordeaux? I mean, uh, do you feel like they have champions in the city? I think that California wine is is a category that's gaining more, but mm-hmm. I think that's a, that's a product of these sort of hipster producers in California. Arno Roberts, right? And that kind of thing. Exactly. I mean, Napa Cabernet, like full throttle Napa, Napa Cabernet, doesn't have a lot of ambassadors in New York that are in sort of the the you know the the I don't know how to put it. I mean, outside of steakhouses, let's just put it that uh-huh. way. Um, but I would say that they at least have steakhouses. Yeah. Whereas like my Camus Cabernet doesn't even have that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, f- I feel like there's certainly categories that don't have people that are championing them. Yeah. So you mean classic Napa Cabernet? Yeah. Yeah. Who's who's rocking that? Like to any proclaimed yeah. extent, who's like behind that? Mm-hmm. Who's behind like Western Australia, like cool climate, Mount Lengi Garan kind of Well, Paul Greco newly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, really, yeah. like, he's not doing Summer of Shiraz yet. You know what I mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Summer of Barasa, Shiraz. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you disagree. No, but I, feel I don't like disagree. there's certain categories where, you know, some people are not like, into it. Like, what is the, per, like, the really uncool, like, no one's really, like, promoting Uruguayan Tanat, you no, know? Nobody's doing <laughs> Uruguayan Tanat except <laughs> yeah. in Florida where it's got a yeah. weird market. Yeah. But, uh, I mean... South America as a whole, yeah, you don't see a lot of play in in no. New York, Mm-mm. in in Florida. You might, mm-hmm. you know, where there's a little bit more uh, Latin American influence. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, no, I mean Argentinian. I don't know. I don't know a sommelier who's an, a real advocate for Argentinian Malbec. I mean, then you have Fred Dexheimer who's really promoting Chile. Yeah, that's right. That's but, a good point. Um, but like who's, yeah, Uruguayan Tanat, Argentinian Malbec, um, Brazilian sparkling. I mean, those, I've these, never had a Brazilian sparkling one. Yeah. I mean, I, there, there, there are definitely a lot of categories that don't, I'm just trying to think of a category that, that's worthy of someone right, right. actually So you feel like it's it. not, you feel like the quality's not there. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I like, I've probably had, to be fair in my life, probably less than two dozen Argentinian Malbecs. And I think that. That's okay. Um, okay. And <laughs> that's okay. I'm just and, asking your opinion. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think of a category that maybe would would be worthy of someone supporting it that no, that's getting no attention right now. And it's, it's sort of hard to, to, to think of unless it's So maybe just, that's good. Maybe that people are giving the attention that they – that the quality wines deserve. Yeah. You know, maybe there's enough diversity in the marketplace that things are happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, what would you – what do you think really needs a – uh, a spokesperson. I, I think any time that there's a, an area that's heavily associated with modern style technique, mm-hmm. flying winemakers, mm-hmm. and you had somebody that's doing cool climate and traditional winemaking, mm-hmm. um, that guy doesn't get any hype. Mm-hmm. He doesn't get any love. Mm-hmm. And um, it, a lot of times there's there might only be one guy. So he really doesn't get any love because mm-hmm. he can't go regional wide. Like mm-hmm. he's not part of the regional promotion. Mm-hmm. Um so in the times and the the way he he really doesn't get love is somebody's like oh okay we're gonna have Argentinian Malbec and it's gonna be the stereotypical kind not mm-hmm. this weird one mm-hmm. but I f- I feel like it's so much harder for that guy to do what he does and I I do think that there are guys like that mm-hmm. and uh, I uh, you know I think it, there's a way that 
someone like Paul can do like the unlovables list where it's a list of worldwide wines yeah. that don't get enough acclaim. But then also I feel like that list can constantly be changing and mm-hmm. there's no real dedication there mm-hmm. like to one guy. Mm-hmm. Like you would find a list, like for instance, I work at Balud Sud, mm-hmm. there's always going to be a lot of bandol. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always going to be there. Mm-hmm. There's always that dedication to that category. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they forget to order the Maya Camus cab at uh, the wine bar, mm-hmm. you know, no one's going to notice, mm-hmm. you know. But if mm-hmm. all of a sudden all the bandol goes away at Balud Sud, they're going to be like, oh, where did all the bandol go? So I feel like it's the hardest if there's one guy who's doing what we would think of as traditional in mm-hmm. a place that's really associated with modern. Mm-hmm. I, and I feel for that guy because mm-hmm. yeah. I, don't, I don't think he's got the the, the love, mm-hmm. you know, <clears throat> myself. Yeah. I mean, you hear all the time about, especially with Australia, and I think that applies well to Australia, is that you you hear about all these great wines in Australia that don't make it to the United States. That's what everyone wants to talk about. They go there and they say, oh my God, you you, you wouldn't believe. There are all these these wines that are that are at odds with the stereotypical sort of Barossa. I had one that was in a clay pot. That's how it was yeah. served. That was the bottle. Yeah, this I is I think a, we had it yeah, together. exactly. You know, that's and Australia. What, what, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean. <laughs> clay pot. It's not a lie. Is, I mean, it was like was a clay no egg. Yeah, it was a clay egg, and they're like, this is how the package is. <laughs> yeah. And this is Australian wine, you know? So it's like they're first they're working with the fact that they are making restrained wine in Australia, and then it's this egg. I mean, how do you, right. get, how do you, how do you get past the egg? Yeah. I well, actually. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's weird because you got to make special cartons that can hold 12 of them, and they get super <laughs> heavy, and you bring them in. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Tangled. Yeah, mom. Tangled up in, tangled up in <laughs> So what's what's the next coming year? What are you going to be focusing on in your new role as the eater, wine editor? I'd like to hear about what year. What what's what's going to happen? Well, I think it's funny because you know I I was talking to John Bonnet, who has become a real mentor for me and somebody who like took me under his wing a little bit. And he's so smart. Like, he's, he's so just, smart. Like whips nap smart. So smart. And so he said to me, he was like, Talia, this is before the eater thing. He says you really got to find a beat. He's like because you know there's so many people who write about wine and they don't have like the thing. You know they have they ha- you have to have a thing like choose something. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there and I'm like and he's it's like, like stand up comedy. He's like your beat is and he said it casually. He's like your beat is the restaurant beat, the restaurant uh-huh. wine beat. And I was like you know I think I sort of been trying to run in the opposite direction of that uh-huh. since it's what I started. That was your with. early success yeah. and you wanted to like I was like oh I want to write you could do <laughs> other like, things. Yeah. I want to write about like dry farming and like the vodka or something. You know, right. I wanted to do, I wanted to really to sort of establish myself as like a serious wine writer. Right. And I felt like that it's like writing Scorsese about wine. with Boxcar Bertha. Like nobody <laughs> wanted to see the, the one with the. I can't believe this is the first like the movie analogy you're making. I can't believe we've got through like 40 minutes of interview. <laughs> this is the first one. No, but nobody wanted to see that movie. Everyone wanted <laughs> to see the gangster movies from Scorsese. And they're like, why did you make the one about the lady and the train? Like, <laughs> you know, you're supposed to do like De Niro and Pesci yelling at each other with guns. Right. You know? Right. And so I, because I, you know, I was like, well, what do you, how do you establish yourself as a wine writer? I guess you have to do what everybody else does and, and see if you stand right, out. Right, 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 right. And do so I tried better. that. And, right. and, and I, it's, it's really enjoyable for me to be able to write like a long form article about wine. That's a really serious article. But yeah. I found myself, you know, really having more fun with the, with what I was doing for Eater. And I, and I think that, um, and I think it showed in, in the writing a little bit more. 
and I, I felt like the stuff I was doing for other people felt like really safe. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I also realized, I think it clicked at that moment with John and I was like, well, why I really love writing about wine lists and I love, you know, talking about wine through restaurants because I think it's nobody's doing it in such an obvious right. way to connect wine to, to people. It's something I mean, all everyone these people drinks go out wine. to eat and no one's talking to them about what they should order when they're there except for the broad strokes on the, the yeah. guides. No one's saying like at this restaurant. Mm-hmm. It's so obvious and it was like almost too obvious. Right. Um, and I think and I think now I, I realize that I want to focus more on that and, and trying to talk about wine seriously, but doing it by connecting people to it through restaurants and where they go and, and why they're interested in a restaurant, the culture of the restaurant, how wine fits into that. Because um, I think it's very easy to understand. Um, so I think more of that, I think, um, I think also mixing in some, some questions that I think a lot of people want answered about um, the wine industry. Like how it works behind the scenes. Yeah, I think so. And I think, I mean, one how thing. How does it work behind the scenes? I have no idea. I'm going to try to find out. No, but seriously, <laughs> what do you see from your perspective? I mean, what are the ups and what are the downs? I think I think the job of a sommelier is something that a lot of people don't even really understand still. They um, totally don't. They and totally it's don't like get it. Indie car driver. Yeah. You're like, boy, that sounds fascinating, but I have no idea how you got that job or really what you do except stay on the road. Yeah, and and I think that a lot of people there's you know either see the sommelier as sort of like very aloof um, character that you You're know is trying to yeah exactly this really tall skinny right, right, character fairly yeah, <laughs> large nose receding hairline brown. Green hazel eyes. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> I'm not saying any names, but the initials would be L D. <laughs> but I think it's either that, this like weird, this like tall, skinny, yeah, weird Weird guy. Yeah, weird t- guy. Making Scorsese references. That's trying about to sell you something. Nobody saw. Yeah. Or okay. right. Or it's this um it's this person who's just like a like a lot of people see as like a glorified server or something. Mm-hmm. And I think that that explaining exactly what a sommelier does is something that's really important. And I think that there are some ideas around that that I have. Um, and I want to continue to shed light on the people in this industry that I think are really important to driving our wine culture forward in America. I think sommeliers are those people. Writers certainly help. We're all in it together. But I think the person who's really at the point of consumption, the person who's putting the wine in the in the consumer's hand, the sommeliers, the people who are retailers, I think those people are really important to wine and uh, they deserve more attention. And they're interesting people. I mean, think about sommeliers. Like most of them have these very interesting stories of how they ended up in wine, you know, and and they're people who a lot of people are in, interested in, in music. And, you know, I think a lot of people just see the sommeliers as this like major dork that listens to bad music and goes to wine bars. And it's it's not like that at all. Yeah, it's good music. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> no, but are there things about the industry that you find frustrating? I mean, are there things you're like, boy, it, it would work better if it were just like this. Why yeah. isn't it? Why aren't people doing it like this? Well, I think this industry, in a lot of ways, is 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 unfortunately built on a lot of insecurity, and I think that's 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 a really interesting point. You know, and I and I that shows through in in many different ways. I mean, you go on wine berserkers if you really need a, if you really need a, a like you need a you know a, a view of what I'm talking about. I mean, wine berserkers is perfect. You look at comment sections on my posts. Like you look at you know someone like I'm not going to name names, but there are writers out there who have have actually gone in a different direction instead of writing about wine. They're just writing about other writers writing about wine. Oh, uh-huh. you know, right, and I right, think right. that there's just everyone feels threatened that. 
you know, they're going to not be seen as an expert or that they're doing the wrong thing or um, that somebody, you know, they're not influential or, uh, you know, they don't really know what they're talking about. Like there's yeah. just so much of that. It's a big topic that's, there's a lot of facts in wine and it's easy to get them wrong. But I think um, so many people are afraid and this is the nature of the industry. And I don't think it's the fault of the individuals, the afraid of having an opinion, even if it's wrong. Um and because a lot of people are criticized for that. And that's sure. really unfortunate. And you look around the internet and there's there's so much of that that it's astonishing. And it's hard for writers. And I think that's the one big thing is you have to be somebody who really is willing to to get paid very little and get beat up all over the internet. So, I mean, when we've talked a little bit about the criticism of things that you've written, mm-hmm. sometimes I feel like some of the, the comments would imply or seem to assume that you have an agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, let's just talk for a minute. If if you come out of this and you, you get what you want in the wine industry, what would that be? What would that landscape look like? Or is there such a thing? Mm. I think that <laughs> I think that it, the strange thing about it is I think for me success would be to not have to rely on on getting paid to write. Uh-huh. Um, to be able to write and not have to worry about it being, you know, my livelihood in a way. Mm-hmm. I think that I can never not be in wine and that's just not an option. Um, but I, there's, there's so much that's changing about the wine industry that I can't not just, I can't just write. I think that there's so many exciting opportunities outside of that that I want to be a part of. One of the things I've, I've noticed, you've, mm-hmm. you're talking a little bit about some of the criticism that's bantered mm-hmm. around online, different uh, people coming in sometimes quite harshly, and mm-hmm. we've talked a little bit about how some of that's been focused on you mm-hmm. and comments that have come out that have been written uh, mm-hmm. about your reviews. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I read those and I think that the implication is that you have like an agenda of mm-hmm. some kind. It's either assumed or implied in what is being objected to. Mm-hmm. And if you did have an agenda, what would that be? What would it, the landscape look like? Like if I had. If you uh, were to get everything right. your way. What would it be? So, um, you know, for me to not to not have to rely on on you know writing to pay the bills because um, there are a lot of things that I that I want to do in in wine and I think that the industry is changing so drastically um, that you know there's just there's too many opportunities to just to just write. But I think also, um, it takes some of the, the joy out of it a little bit, you know, um, to have to rely, to hustle, to make ends meet, to write about wine, because listen, it's never going to be a lucrative career and I'm not looking to make a lot of money. But what I am looking for is to be able to, to write, you know, when I want to write and, um, to not have to worry about, you know, surviving. And I think, but, you know, to that, I, I don't, want to do anything outside of wine. But the wonderful thing about it is look what's happening on the web and apps. And there are a million things that you can do. And of course, brick and mortar. There's, so I think, I think if I had, I had it all, I think I'd be doing, you know, three different things in wine. And one of those would be writing and, and, you know, I'd have two other things that I was working on. I think for me, the one thing that's kept, um, me going in, in wine is I've, I've always feel like I take jobs that I have no idea how to do. Mm-hmm. And I think once I feel like I know how to do it, then I get really bored and I, I make really bad decisions. Um, 
And uh, I think that in order to, to, to stay fresh and creative in this industry, I have to continue to take on jobs that I don't know how to do. And so I think that's having it all is, is being able to constantly challenge yourself um, in wine. And, and I think that what's happening now, there's just, it's, it's, you know, it's the wild, wild west to a degree. And so, uh, yeah. What would you say those changes are? I mean, what are some of those things? We all, I, I feel that too. Like, yeah, it's a real changing time in the wine scene. But why do I feel that way? What do you see? I think that um, we're seeing a lot of different interests from all angles. And I think, I think a lot of people are trying to figure out how people want to communicate about wine. Um, I think from a writing standpoint and I, what resonates with people. Because I think that the audience is changing a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's one thing with Eater is sort of seeing that these things are sticking. And I, don't, I didn't really know why. And I think it's – I think that people – I think that speaks to the changing audience. Like I don't know – yeah, I, I, I think that that has something to do with it. Is there a culture clash? Do we see the old guard maybe in the consumer or in the writing uh, – mm-hmm. Maybe not meeting up with the younger, uh, either consumers or sommeliers or mm-hmm. writers. Is there a level where there's a divide between mm-hmm. how things used to be done and how things are done? Are there two cultures living simultaneously? Maybe mm-hmm. sometimes I think there's both violinists and fiddlers, and sometimes they don't get along so well. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I, I I don't know if I necessarily. I think it, I think in some ways it looks like a clash, but I think right now we're just seeing things two different divergent paths that are moving further and further, further away, apart from each yeah, other. Yeah, instead of clashing with each other. And at one time they used to all just be the wine scene, but yeah. now the wine scene's getting more fragmented and yeah. What more is the wine surprised. scene? Well, it used to just be anyone who drank wine, mm-hmm. but now I feel like a lot of those people don't necessarily like each other, mm-hmm. and don't want to be in the same place mm-hmm. with each other or drinking the same thing. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Or am I just totally in off in left field? In that? I just think, well, you're seeing factions emerge, you know, in wine. And I think that maybe that's what you're trying to get at. I, I think that the natural wine thing is a really great example of that. But I think that it's not about natural wine. To me, it's what you drink says a lot about who you are and what you believe, I think, in a way, especially with wine. And I think a lot of people um, are saying something about themselves culturally in choosing what they're drinking. And I think that that's why the natural wine thing has sort of been such a, a, you know, a contentious topic. And I think it's because you have some people that are saying, well, I'm the 99%. And then other people saying, well, I'm the 1%, you know, and that's, that's sort of what's happening. So you're saying you're saying that natural wine is more populist. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And I think that you have it makes it makes it makes some other people feel really insecure, and um, and I think that's why people get so riled up about it. It's because you know you're if you're if you're talking negatively about it, it's like you're almost offending that person's like humanity in a way. It's like their uh-huh. choices in life. You know, so it's about something way bigger than just natural wine. And I think that's why it, that to me answers the question about, you know, everyone wonders why the hell is this such a big thing? Why is everyone arguing about it? Because I think it's, I think it is a bigger thing to a, to a lot of people. Um, but I mean, you might want to edit that out because it's like too dorky, but, um, but I think, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know what's really happening with, uh, with the wine world and, and it's just in a very curious transitional place. I have no doubt that you'll shed some light in time and I yeah. appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us and uh, you know it's always a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, Lovey Dalton. Thanks for your time. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. 
The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.